1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3-5 through 5, records our basic thesis statement for today's Differing Things podcast. It records the most important event of all human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is right. The greatest event in all history is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, for this event is the culmination of God's work of salvation for all humanity. Now for today's host, Bill Petrie. The Apostle Paul records the following words for us in his epistle to the church at Corinth. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, verses 3 and 4, the following words. For I conveyed to you as of first importance what also I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Our basic thesis statement of today is that the most important event of all human history is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You heard me correctly. The greatest event in all history is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For this event is the culmination of God's salvation work performed on the cross when Jesus Christ sacrificed himself as a sin offering. The Apostle Paul throughout the first 14 chapters of 1 Corinthians has dealt with many issues. Some are of only peripheral significance to the Christian faith. But now, as he nears the conclusion of this epistle, he reminds the Corinthians, and us today, of our heritage. Writing in the first two verses, In addition, brothers, I declare to you the evangel which I proclaimed to you, which also you have received, and in which you abide, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I proclaimed to you, unless you believed in vain. Could you ask for any stronger language? Paul is about as straightforward as he can be. He restates the evangel, or good news, that several years before he had brought to the Corinthians. He was not the inventor of it. It had been delivered to him. It was the evangel, the gospel, the good news, the news of the crucified and risen Lord. Paul reminds them that they had received it. He reminds them it was something in which they stood. It was foundational to all they were. It was something by which they were saved. Now we really are down to the basics, are we not? This is the essence 
of the Christian faith. It was something that they must hold fast. He was aware that life bombards us in ways that threaten to strip us of our faith. William Barclay puts it in these words, and I quote, Things happen to us and happen to others which baffle our understanding. Life has its problems, to which there seems to be no solution, and its questions, to which there seems to be no answer. Life has its dark places, where there seems to be nothing to do but to hold on. Faith is always a victory. The victory of the soul, which tenaciously maintains its clutch on God. End of quote. This is bottom line truth. The evangel or gospel is not something to be handled haphazardly. It is the most important news one can ever receive. You and I need to be reminded frequently what it's all about. It is important that we remember the basics. So Paul continues to state the facts of religious and spiritual life. And they are clearly declared in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 11. And I want to read these words to you out of the Universal Version Bible. It states, For I conveyed to you as of first importance what also I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brothers all at once, the majority of who survived to this day, though some died. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and last of all, as to one of premature birth, he appeared to me also. For I am the very least of the apostles, unfit to bear the name of apostle, since I persecuted the ecclesia of God. But by the favor of God, I am what I am. And his favor, which was toward me, has not been without fruit. But I labored more abundantly than all of them, though it was not I, but God's favor at my side. Then, whether I or they, thus we are proclaiming, and so you are believing. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest event in all human history. It is the basic event, in fact, undergirding our faith. Why? Because it takes our vague notions of the existence of God, perhaps a loving God, and fleshes out in understandable terms that this God loves us so much that he took upon himself humanity and exposed himself incarnationally to our human existence and 
ultimately sacrificed himself for our sins, our guilt, our brokenness, our alienation, capturing all that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ is risen has been the ecclesia's affirmation through the centuries. You and I are privileged to declare that fact as the basis of our faith. But obviously not everyone believes this. There are three basic approaches to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Approach number one, the resurrection never happened. You and I know people who simply deny it. They see the resurrection as absurd. It was a result of pre-enlightenment imagination. Educated people do not believe that dead people rise from the dead. Intelligent people do not believe that God, if there is a God, ever became a man. Some who deny the resurrection are atheists. They are people committed to the belief that there is no God. All other religion is absurd, except wherein it may have some culturally redeeming aspects. To the atheist, the only religion that matters is atheism itself. On the other hand, some who deny the resurrection are quite religious. They simply do not believe the Bible. They have developed a religious faith system that is a lie. We do not have the time to become specific as to the various expressions of this thesis. In short, there are well-meaning people who see Jesus as one of the most powerful people to have ever walked the face of this earth. He set a marvelous example. He died a martyr's death somewhere Buried in the environs of Jerusalem are the 2,000-year-old remains of this person about whom such a fantasy mythology exists. Jesus is a great or the greatest man. But that is it. Our lives are in much better shape if we take him seriously, if we follow him and live according to his Example, approach number two, the resurrection happened spiritually. Persons who hold this approach see in life a resurrection principle, even as the tulips and daffodils break out of their bulbs and move to the surface of the soil, once frozen solid and finally peak above the surface, bringing glorious springtime color. Even so, there is a death and resurrection principle in human life. Jesus died and was buried. However, what he taught lives on. This is classic Protestant theological liberalism, which emphasizes the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Jesus was the finest expression of humanity. His teachings were so wonderful that when he died, his example and spirituality is resurrected within us. 
This is a more common viewpoint than some of us might realize. Kenneth L. Chafin, a pastor for many years in Texas, tells about one Easter season in which he read a chapter a day from a devotional book written by a minister who was quite quite prominent approximately 100 years ago. The book focused on the events of Holy Week. Chafin timed his reading so that he could read the chapter on the crucifixion on, on Friday of Resurrection Week. And the one on the resurrection on the Sunday itself. He describes his letdown as he read the last chapter of that book. The author did not believe the resurrection literally took place. He felt that the accounts of the resurrection in the Bible were nothing but faith's expression of what the disciples had wanted to happen. The author had imagined an upper room scene in which they were all lamenting that one who had loved so freely should have died as the object of such hatred, that one whose teaching had such authority should be silenced so young. Then in the scenario he was imagining, he had one of the disciples jump to his feet and shout, we will not let him die. The way he lived, we will live. The things he taught, we will teach. The mission he had will become our mission. We will not let him die. The plain inference was that the church had created the resurrection. So-called Christian theologians who take this approach refer to the resurrection event by that very phrase, which sounds like they believe it happened, they are declaring that they are not prepared to affirm that he literally rose from the dead. They are demythologizing scripture. They are doing their best to make this supernatural account palatable to the most enlightened mind. They are declaring a spiritual resurrection principle, but denying its historical factuality. When they do that, they are pulling the rug out from under the good news or the gospel or the evangel that Paul proclaimed to the church in Corinth, which in turn they received, in which they stand, and in which they are being saved. They are trying their best to hold on to notions about a loving and forgiving God who will not hold us accountable for our sin. They are troubled by the thought of a blood atonement. They want to preserve all that is pleasant, nice, and understandable about the Christian faith without affirming the resurrection. Let me be very frank. I can understand how a person might have difficulty believing in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it would appear to me 
that that same person would ultimately have a hard time believing in their own romanticizing of the faith into spiritual principle void of the divine authority of Scripture. In fact, it is this denial of the historical facts of the faith that has brought Western, European, British, and American so-called Christianity into the decline that we see today. Take the facts away, and there is nothing left but bland religious platitudes that are the equivalent of putting rouge and lipstick on a corpse. Approach 3. The resurrection actually happened. This is what the church has affirmed throughout the past 20 centuries. This is the basis of our faith. The historic teaching of the church is that Jesus Christ literally, physically, rose from the dead. You see, these are the terms of your Christian faith. Paul writes reminding you and me of that which is of first importance. This is an expression of that which God has given to us and that to which we have committed ourselves. Any legal document has its presuppositions, its contractual understanding. There are basic commitments a person agrees to in a mutual negotiation when called to to a new job. You are saying, I will provide certain specific services in exchange for a particular amount of money and additional benefits that you will give me. These are the facts of life. You know them. You live according to them. You and I can relate to this, can we not? You and I know that we cannot have it both ways. There are basic facts of life, and we must live with the realities of them. There are basic terms also to the Christian faith. All the sentimental notions in the world cannot change reality. I am either a United States citizen, or I am not. My admiration of the Swiss does not make me Swiss. The warm feelings I have when I'm in, if I was in Scotland do not make me a Scot. There are certain terms of citizenship in any earthly government, and there are certain terms for citizenship in the kingdom of God. God has established that kingdom. And the establishment is based on his very nature, which requires righteousness, justice, and sometimes wrath. Sin cannot be dealt with lightly. Some sacrifice had to be offered for sin. The Bible says that he himself became our sacrifice on the cross so that we would die to sin and live to righteousness with him, being identified with him. When Jesus Christ was placed in the tomb, we were placed 
into an identification with his burial so that we could rise in a newness of life with him. History, as well as the Bible, instructs us that on the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That is why Paul, at that strategic point in his letter to the Corinthians, states emphatically what he states in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 6. For I conveyed to you as of first importance what also I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brothers all at once. The majority of who survived to this day, though some died. Verses 7 and 8 go on to state, After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and last of all, as to one of premature birth, he appeared to me also. <clears throat> History records the existence of a man named Jesus of Nazareth. So the question a lot of people have is, can the resurrection of Jesus Christ be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt? And as, it, as I just read in those few short verses, history records his existence with witnesses. There are casual references in Josephus and Tacitus, and they are amplified by other human writers, such as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the Apostle Paul, persons who were witnesses to the events of his life. These persons recorded what they saw. We cannot take their reports lightly. I personally would have a hard time proving the historicity of George Washington and the many events surrounding his life. However, there were enough people who did observe him that I feel quite confident that he existed. Perhaps, though, the whole idea is a legend to give some kind of stability to our our American way of life. You and I can play games philosophically. Much of what we believe, we believe in hearsay, the report of others who observed and carefully recorded their observations. We do need to be carefully, we do need to carefully sort out the data. Proof does not come easily, but there is evidence for the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. These facts stand in the way of all attempts to explain the, away the resurrection. Tell me, where is his body? Produce it. 
it would have been to the authorities' benefit to have done that. There is the circumstance of the precisely disposed grave clothes. There are the numerous appearances over nearly six weeks. As Jesus appeared to them individually, in small groups, into large gatherings. Paul corroborates the records of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He appeared to Mary Magdalene in the garden, and to Peter, to the two disciples on the Emmaus Road, to the disciples in the locked room with Thomas absent, then to the disciples in the locked room with Thomas present, to the seven on the Sea of Galilee, to over 500 brothers and sisters. The very existence of the Christian church bears witness to the fact that something happened to transform a broken, beaten group of losers into men and women who gave their very lives as martyrs for Jesus Christ, whom they had witnessed in his resurrection presence. Would a man seriously allow himself to be martyred for a lie? The British jurist, Sir Edward Clark, wrote, and I quote, As a lawyer, I have made up a long study of the evidences for the events of the first resurrection day. To me, the evidence is conclusive, and over and over again in the high court I have secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. Inference follows on evidence, and the truthful witness is always artless and disdains effect. The gospel evidence to the resurrection is of this class, and as a lawyer, I accept it unreservedly as the testimony of truthful men to fact that they were able to substantiate. End of quote. Attempts have been made to explain the resurrection accounts naturalistically. German rationalist Venturini suggested that Jesus only fainted on the cross and subsequently revived in the cool tomb. The theologian John Warwick Montgomery wrote, and I quote, This swoon theory is typical of all such arguments. They are infinitely more improbable than the resurrection itself and they fly squarely in the face of the documentary evidence. Jesus surely died on the cross, for Roman crucifixion teams knew their business. They had enough practice. He could not possibly have rolled the heavy boulder from the door of the tomb after the crucifixion experience. End of quote. And even if we discounted these impossibilities, what happened to him later? If we agree that he died and was interred, then the explanation that the body was stolen is no more helpful. For whom would have taken it? Surely not the Romans or the Jewish parties, for they wished at all costs to squelch the Christian sect. And certainly not the Christians. For to do so 
and then fabricate detailed accounts of Jesus's resurrection would have been to fly in the face of the ethic their master preached and for which they ultimately died. Note that when the disciples of Jesus proclaimed the resurrection, they did so as eyewitnesses, and they did so while people were still alive who had contact with the events they spoke of. In AD 56, Paul wrote that over 500 people had seen the risen Jesus and that most of them were still alive in 1 Corinthians 15, 6. It passes the bounds of credibility that the early Christians could have manufactured such a tale and then preached it among those who might easily have refuted it simply by producing the body of Jesus. Let us go back and revisit the three basic approaches to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We said that some believe that the resurrection never happened. What if it did not? Paul is not trying to con people into faith. He bluntly states that you and I are most to be pitied if this did not happen. He writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 17 through 19, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. It is important to realize that the issue at Corinth was not that the Corinthians did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They did, even though they were divided into factions, following the various teachers and preachers who had come through Corinth, whether it be Paul or Cephas or Apollos or some elitist who claimed to simply follow Jesus. All these teachers held to the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Where the, there was disagreement was whether the rest of us would also rise from the dead. <clears throat> Paul is saying that if the resurrection of Jesus never happened, we are wasting our time. If he is not risen from the dead, when you die, you also will not rise from the dead. There is no promise of life beyond this life if Jesus is not risen. Make all your decisions based on this life. Do not mess around with false hope. If Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, you have the hope of the resurrection. He claimed to be the resurrection and the life. He is the first fruit of all who died. Whoever believes in him will not die, but have Eonian life. We say that some talk about the resurre res resurrection principle, spiritualizing it. Is not that good enough? Well, you can develop a very fine ethic based on the example of a dead martyr, Jesus, 
But then there is the question of whether that spiritual resurrection of his ideas is worth following. After all, he claimed to be God. As C.S. Lewis so aptly stated, one of three possibilities then is true. One is that he was a lunatic who thought he was God and was not, who wants to trust the ethics of a lunatic. The second is that he was a charlton who knew he was not God, but was out to con people into thinking he was, who wants to follow the ethics of a charlton. But there is a third possibility. And that third possibility is that Jesus Christ is God. The facts as outlined are true. He was crucified. He did die. He was buried. And that on the third day, he did rise from the dead. For me to call myself Christian and give my life to a dead lunatic or a dead charlton is simply not where I am, nor should you be. I would toss out the whole Christian faith, acknowledging that there are some positive ethical teachings, but I would not hang around long enough to take them seriously. There have been other excellent ethical teachers of various religions who have never made such fantastic claims. I would rather follow one of them if the resurrection were not true. Then there are those who say it really did happen. If it did, the whole Christian faith holds together. Sin and death are destroyed. Both life and death begin to make sense. Life makes sense because I know where I have been. I know where I have come from, and I know where I am going. Death makes sense. I no longer must deny it. I no longer must kid myself into thinking I am still a teenager. I do not have to try to look young, holding on to every little bit of life I can, possibly hold on to playing it safe. Jesus Christ has destroyed death and the terrible specter of annihilation or endless torture. Jesus Christ has destroyed my fear of punishment for the things I have done wrong. Jesus Christ is alive. And because he lives, I live both in this eon and all the eons to come. I do not know how many more years I have in this life, nor do I know how many you have left. But I know one thing for certain. I do not have one single ounce of security in this world due to my efforts. Everything I have is based on God, who is my Father, who created me, the God who is my Redeemer, who has saved me, the God who is the Holy Spirit who sustains me. The resurrection of Jesus Christ equips me both to live and die. Whether you are 5, 47, 69, or 97, I trust that you have received Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you have not, do it now. It's simple.
just simply believe the words that I have read to you in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. Christ died for your sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried, and he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Simply believing that and trusting that places you into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And since you do believe that, celebrate. Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. You now have victory. And all this reminds me of how we should live our lives. I want you to think back to Joshua and the battle of Jericho. Before the battle had even begun, God told Joshua he had delivered Jericho into Joshua's hands. I know we do not really like to talk about battles or wars anymore. The idea of everyone coexisting sounds great. Driving around town or on our highways, many of us will spot a bumper sticker or two with the words coexist spelling spelled out using the symbols of multiple religions and cults. But it will never happen. Not until Jesus returns and he brings his judgment upon the earth. Battles and wars will remain. So no matter how peaceful we wish our lives could be, the truth is our lives, this side of heaven, will be tainted with conflict. For many of us, an unseen war is already raging against us, fighting us, and trying to keep us from embracing who we are in Christ. We are reminded in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But while that is true, we are not to be discouraged or feel defeated. Jesus Christ has already fought the ultimate battle on the cross and won. Because of Christ, we fight these battles from a place of victory, not defeat. If only more Christians in our country and around the world would embrace this truth. In verses 2 through 6 of Joshua chapter 6, we see some pretty detailed commands God gave to Joshua. The first thing I notice is that God's warfare tactics are not like ours. God basically tells Joshua to attack Jericho with some marching men, trumpet-carrying priests, the Ark of the Lord, and finally on the last day, shouts from all the people. And you know what? Joshua obeys no matter how crazy God's military tactics sound. Why? Because he trusts God. He knows God will do what he says he will do. God promises he fulfills. Through those crazy military tactics, God's amazing power is displayed to an evil nation and his own watching children. 
if Joshua had attacked Jericho using conventional military wisdom of the day and succeeded, God's hand would not have been seen as clearly as the victory of the battle, nor glorified the same way. The unconventional military tactics were as much for the evil nation as they were for God's people. God does the same for us today through his word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8.31. Maybe your city of Jericho is in your life to show you and the unbelieving world around you just how powerful God is. Be a Joshua and obey God's word. Do what he says and watch as God tears down Jericho's walls before your very eyes. There is no situation, no pain, no sin so great that God cannot handle and no problem too big for his mighty hands. After all, he was able to raise himself from the dead. If God had the power to bring himself back to life after death, what can stop him? God's promise and his promises never fail. God's people do not simply fight for victory, but from a position of victory. Because God has already won the battle and he's already won the war. Reckon on his promises and obey what he tells you to do. And realize because Christ is risen, you have victory. Jesus Christ's victory through his resurrection ensures your victory. And I want to conclude with the words of the Apostle Paul as he writes in his epistle to the Corinthian church. In chapter 15, the Apostle Paul records these wonderful words for us. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, so that, my beloved brothers, be firm, immovable, superabounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not without fruit in the Lord. Good day and God bless.
We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast. Thank you.